Savior. And so I, I love that people came, but just as an encouragement and a challenge to all of us, what they really need is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he came and died for their sins in their place. And because of that, we can have new life. So, yeah, I just, man. So just have a, have a burden for your, your friends, your coworkers. That's what they really need. And so uh, it's cool that we can help kind of point people to Jesus who meets our needs by, by giving them something physical. But, man, they really need Jesus. All right. Just some thoughts. Um, we're in Genesis 37 today. Uh, we're kind of turning a, a corner in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're, start, we're starting to go down the path of Joseph now and the story of Joseph. Uh, but I was thinking about this quote this week, and I was trying to pin down who said it, but no one really knows. So lots of people have said it through the years. But it's this, all frustration is born out of unmet expectations. All frustration is born out of unmet expectations. Let me give you a couple examples from my life in the last month or so, or the last few months. So uh, about a month ago, um, I was riding my bike home from church, stopped at someone's house, parked my bike, uh, you know, kind of on the the curb there. I had it in my peripheral. I was on their deck talking to them with it in my peripheral. Okay, I didn't lock it up. It It was a nice bike. Went into the, the person's garage for like a minute max to look at something. Came back out and it was switched. Okay, for a pretty dumpy bike. Now, I expected it to be fine. I trusted humanity in general. Um, I, I, I guess I just tend to be pretty optimistic and sometimes it gets me in trouble like that. Um, another time, so the past couple Christmas Eves, um, I've expected not many people here. Um, it's because one, two, three Christmas Eves ago, there was hardly anybody here. But the last two, uh, we've had to uh, turn people away because we didn't have enough space in here for them. And it's because I expected not many people there. I was, I was rather pessimistic about that. But then God said, nope, I'm going to do something that you can't even imagine. But I was frustrated by it because we could have had two services. We could, you know, we could have planned for that. But Again, all frustration is born out of unmet expectations, and it happens all the time to us. Now, there's two truths that I want us to latch on to in Exodus 37, or not Exodus, Genesis 37 today. And we have to hold on to both of these truths simultaneously, or you're going to be constantly frustrated by unmet, unreasonable expectations of the world, of people, and of God. Here they are. One, expect evil from the world. Expect evil from the world, but two, expect goodness from God, which is what we just sang. So let's just do a poll here, okay? Just unashamedly, it's, it's all good. We're not going to judge one another for this, but um, if you're more of an optimist, okay, everything's, you know, everything's great, everything is awesome type person, raise your hand. More of an optimist. Okay. If you're more of a pessimist, raise your hand. You know, like glass half empty. Something's going to go wrong. It is. Okay. All right. There's a good mix of us in here. So for optimists like myself, here's, here's the truth you really need to hang on to more in life. Expect evil from the world. 
Expect brokenness. Expect sin, backstabbing, chaos, suffering. People and things can and will let you down. Even the most solid things or people in your life at times will let you down. Pessimists, you really need to latch on to this today as we go through this text. Expect good from God. Expect God to do nothing but good, loving, gracious things always because God never does and never will do evil. He's not capable of it. Even in the middle of the darkest evil that you can imagine, God is doing something good. So Genesis 37, we see a ton of evil, particularly from Joseph's brothers, but we see God doing something good even amidst that. So as I read this, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes, okay? And I'm even going to address you like you're Joseph today in between, okay? So let's start in verse 1, Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And that's how we know it's a new section. Every time in Genesis, it says, now here's the generations of Abraham, of Isaac, now Jacob. And then Joseph. That's the, that's the, the theme, the story now. It's Joseph's life. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay, you... Joseph, remember you're Joseph here, you seemingly tattle on your brothers to your dad, okay? But you're actually just trying to show your faithfulness. They're doing some terrible things, and you don't want your, your father to be unaware. But your brothers are just full of evil. You're just trying to be faithful. So you do the right thing, and your father gives you this sweet Technicolor dream coat, okay? Have you ever seen that movie? Probably 70s, 80s. Um, anyway, uh, Gives you this sweet robe, and clearly you're the favorite. Now, you would think, you probably know some of the history of your dad. You think your dad, Jacob, would have learned his lesson from his parents who showed favoritism to Jacob and Esau, but uh, he doesn't. And Jacob is, is, thinks you are the best son. So things are looking pretty good for you. But now your brothers hate you. And can't even talk to you without being a jerk. Okay, so you know like, you know, like uh, when, when, when there's like a rift in a relationship to the point where like they're saying something good, like I hope you have a good day, and, but they say it like that and it still sounds like they're being a jerk to you? That's what's going on with his brothers, okay? Imagine having 11 of them though, hating you and talking to you like that all the time. And they're not doing it because you did something wrong. Either they're doing it because you were faithful and did what was right. So we're starting to see the evil of hatred here. But next, starting in verse 5, we see the evil of jealousy coming at Joseph. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? 
Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. You think he would learn by now, but he tells his brothers. He said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jealousy. You, Joseph, have two dreams. And this is incredible because dreams like this in this culture at this time for you were regarded as divine. You got these dreams and these are from God. So God just gave you dreams of you ruling over your family. So you share them with your brothers and with your dad, not because you want to throw it in their face, but because you can't keep it to yourself. God gave me a dream, and here, you know, you just share it with the first people you see. But now your brothers are jealous of you because they want the power. They want the inheritance. The fact that you're going to be ruling over them means you're going you're to get the birthright. You're going to get the inheritance. It was a big deal to you. You get the favor you're thinking to yourself, I should have known not to share it with them, but you did. So now your brothers hate you and are jealous of you. And you're just listening to God and trying to do what's right. I, I guess nice guys do finish last here. But let's move on to verse 12. It gets worse. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not my brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. (laughs) But when Reuben heard it, He rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, not, not bazooka bubblegum, sorry kids, balm and myrrh, and on their way to carry it to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, our hand, uh, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Wow, I just noticed something. I'm just, this is, 
Wow, I usually don't get spontaneous like this. They sold their brother for shekels of silver. Judas, wasn't it 20? Ellis is. Was it, it was 30? Was it 30? I don't know. You guys know it was 30, not 20. Not the same number. Not that big a deal. Never mind. I thought it was the same number for a second. Either way, he sold him for, for shekels of silver, just like Judas sold Jesus. Uh, that's a pretty cool comparison. All right, back at the ranch. You're Joseph. You're just, you're just going to see how your brothers are doing, okay? You get there. They strip you and leave you for dead in a pit. Then it seems like they changed their mind, come back, and sell you to some Ishmaelites. Now, you knew they hated you and were jealous of you, but you didn't think they would go this far. Clearly, he wanted you dead and out of their lives. Hatred, jealousy, now violence. You're out of the scene now, but the brothers continue. The evil continues. Next, we see deception. Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the, blood in the, uh, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. If you knew that all of this happened as Joseph, you'd be like, wow, I knew my brothers were terrible people, but I didn't think they were this terrible. And they're in big, they're in big trouble, and now here I am in Egypt? God, I have been faithful to you. What are you doing to me? But it turns out it's worse than Joseph probably thought. His brothers deceived his dad, who refused to be comforted and mourned his death for days. These brothers are pure evil, hatred, jealousy, violence, deception. So as we kind of turn a corner here, even when you, even when us, let's take, take ourselves out of the story now. We're not Joseph anymore. Even when we are incredibly faithful to God, expect evil from the world. But expect good from God. Where did we see good from God in this story? It's not super evident, but it's there. God pours out His goodness to Joseph in two ways. An, a couple obvious ways and a really hidden way. So the obvious ways are through the two dreams. When Joseph gets these dreams, it feels good to Joseph in the moment. It was totally clear this is God's goodness to Joseph right away. But then, his goodness is shown in a hidden way. Super hidden, in fact. It was shown by him being sold as a slave 
on his way to Egypt. That did not feel good to Joseph in the moment. And it was totally unclear that this was God's goodness until years later. And so I want to look at the moment that Joseph sees, or at least articulates, that this is God's goodness and God's hand. So if you flip over a few pages, Genesis chapter 50, verse 18 through 20. Genesis 50, 18. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but the dreams end up coming true. Joseph does end up ruling over his brothers. And Genesis 50, 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Real good doesn't always feel good in the middle of it. Most of chapter 37 did not feel good at all to Joseph. So the question is, is it actually good if it doesn't feel good in the middle of it? And the answer is absolutely yes. And here's, here's how. I think our definition of good is wrong sometimes at least when applied to God. See, goodness is not defined by me and my feelings or you and your feelings. It's defined by God and His infinite wisdom and goodness. So when we think of good, we think of things that are worthy of approval. But who decides what's worthy of approval, right? Because I, I think something's worthy of approval that, that you might not, right? Or, or that you might not. And, and you, we, all three of us might have different versions of what's worthy of approval or good. So goodness can't lie in just my point of view. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, defines the goodness of God like this. God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. All that God is and does is worthy of approval, is good. He's the standard of good. So when you see verses or hear verses like Romans 8.28 that says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are calling according to His purpose. This verse starts to make sense with that definition by Wayne Grudem. It makes sense in real life now. See, God defines goodness. I don't. And that's good news. Think of it like this, okay? Let's say that a kid has a sliver. Not that this has ever happened to me, right? Let's say that a kid has a sliver and you need to pull it out with a tweezers. Now, what do 99.99999% of kids do in that circumstance? Kids, what would you do? Your parents are coming, to get a, coming at you with the tweezers to get a splinter out. What do you do? You run away, you scream, no! Right? Exactly, you scream, you run, you hide, you refuse, right? Not, not that I'm encouraging you to do that, but uh, that seems to be the reaction, right? Is it good for you kids to get the splinter out? Well, I shouldn't ask kids. They, they don't really. Parents, is it good to get the splinter out? Yes, or else they could get an infection, right? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't seem good, but nonetheless, 
is good. God's goodness isn't the absence of pain. It's the certain promise that God will bring good out of the pain. So I've been asking people this week, we talked a bit about this as elders, as a staff, even at our connection group, we talked about this. What good is God bringing about in your current situation that doesn't feel good right now? That's hidden rather than obvious. So for me, just to be real honest with you guys, God is working some good in my own soul through this pandemic by weaning me of my security and identity in people sitting in seats here on Sunday morning. We have half the seats out, and we still have lots of room right now. But it's really good for me not to find my hope, my joy, and security in the amount of people sitting in a room. It needs to be found in Christ and Christ alone. That is good, but it hurts. Another thing, I'm learning to care less and less about the praise and approval of other people. Still a work in process, right? But especially with decisions. It doesn't matter what decisions I make, we make as elders. It doesn't, doesn't matter what decisions we make. Someone's unhappy. That's never been more true than right now. But it's really good because I am learning, God is teaching me how to find Less and less of my approval from others and more and more from God and God alone. As I've asked this question, others have said things like, it's, you know, this season right now, God is working good by bringing my family closer together. God is working good by having me trust him more financially. So even though it's a little more tight, I'm actually learning to trust him more with my money. See, God's goodness is in the absence of pain. It's the certain promise that God will bring good out of the pain. Real good doesn't always feel good in the middle of it. Now, it was totally unclear in Genesis 37 that, God's, that this was God's goodness, him getting sold as a slave and going to Egypt until years later. Joseph had no idea him getting sold was good in the moment. And so I'm thinking about COVID-19. And I, I can't stand here today and tell you good, besides things he's doing that I just shared with you in my own soul, but I can't share like the greater good that God is doing right now. I just don't know. People are sick and dying. People are isolated and depressed and feeling alone. The economy is tanking. We might not get to watch any football this fall. God's people are not getting the connection they need with one another. All of these things, though, except for maybe the football, all of these things are the evil effects of a sinful world. And so listen carefully. We should expect this from the world. I really need to hear, I'm preaching to myself today, an optimist, okay? I should expect the world to be full of brokenness. The fact that I've been so surprised by it has been alarming to me. We just sang a song called Waymaker. It says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. I don't know what God's doing right now, but I'm confident He's going to bring good out of it. Why? 
because that's who he is and that's what he does. Expect good from God. Now I want to throw a couple caveats into this, a, a couple warnings. We have to expect both of these at the same time or your, or your life's going to get all out of whack. Your thinking's going to get all out of whack. If you expect the world to be evil but don't expect God to be good, you're going to become incredibly cynical of everyone, everything, and most importantly, cynical of God. Nothing ever goes right. Nothing ever will. It's all pointless. You start to project blame for the world's evil wrongly onto God. That is a dangerous path. Also, if you expect God to be good and don't expect the world to be evil, you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. You expect people and situations to give you what really only God can give you, and you start to expect people to be good like God when they aren't. Jesus said no one is good. No one. Expect both evil from the world and goodness from God. But I want to end by pointing us to Jesus. Jesus expected and experienced evil from the world more than Joseph. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. See, he experienced it and it got worse for him. He was killed. He was crucified on a cross. He expected that though and experienced it, but he also expected and experienced the goodness of God. He rose from the dead. God brought good out of Jesus' pain by defeating death, sin, and the devil and giving us life in Him forever. Out of Jesus' pain came God's goodness. Not just for Him, but for all of us who believe. So today when you leave and enter everyday life again, Expect what from the world? Evil. But expect what from God? Good. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your goodness. Forgive us for the times where we doubt Your goodness because of all the evil things going around us. And forgive us for the times where we projected what was just evil from sin and the world that had nothing to do with You, God. Help us to keep those things straight as we walk about our lives. And thank you for your great example, Jesus, of expecting and experiencing both evil from the world and goodness from you, God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand. We're going to sing this song. I, I specifically asked the worship team to introduce this song this week. You can stand on up. Um, but you got to hear it earlier. Um, it's pretty easy to catch on to. Sing this out, though. We're singing all about the goodness of God, all right?